Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. Today I'm chatting with Dr. Walter Grayson about the graphic history of hip-hop, published by the New York City Department of Education in 2023 to mark 50 years of the art. Dr. Walter Grayson is the DeWitt Wallace Professor in the Department of History at McAllister College. After his undergraduate education at Villanova, he earned his PhD at Temple. He is a preeminent historian of Afrofuturism, the Black speculative arts, and digital economies in the world today. Named one of today's Black history makers by the Philadelphia Daily News, Dr. Grayson has written more than 100 academic articles and essays. His work has appeared on the Huffington Post, National Public Radio, and The Atlantic, among other popular professional and scholarly journals. He is also the author, editor, and contributor to 18 books, including Suburban Erasure, The Land Speaks, Cities Imagined, Illmatic Consequences, The Black Reparations Project, and the Encyclopedia of Black Comics. Dr. Grayson is an, is an active consultant and activist in historical preservation efforts. His digital humanities project, The Wakanda Syllabus, and The Racial Violence Syllabus have had a global impact. He currently writes about the racial wealth gap and patterns of economic globalization and serves as a special consultant to the Institute for the Study of Global Racial Justice at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey. The graphic history of hip hop celebrates 50 years of hip hop. In a unique blend of music, history, research, and art, the graphic history of hip-hop takes you on a journey of the music musical revolution that changed the world over the last half century. From its roots in the Bronx to today's game-changing artists, this beautiful, one-of-a-kind graphic novel intertwines hip-hop's storied history, massive global appeal, and its extensive influence on culture, politics, and economics into a new and innovative scholastic experience. As the first in a series of graphic novels, the graphic history of hip-hop brings together a powerful blend of music, art, and history, with over 60 years of research from hundreds of professional historians and other scholars from the humanities and social sciences. The curriculum is uniquely designed to engage students as they will see, hear, and experience how the world of hip-hop evolved in response to the rapidly changing political and economic environments from the 1970s to the 2000s. This work is an essential resource to enhance modern urban and world history curriculums and create a unique and engaging classroom setting for students. The series is a collaboration between lifelong visual Afrofuturism artist and illustrator, Tim Fielder, and my honored guest, preeminent historian of Afrofuturism, Walter Grayson. The graphic history of hip-hop was published by the New York City Department of Education in 2023. Dr. Walter Grayson, Walter, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you so much. 
Yeah. And uh, can we say happy 50th to hip hop? Absolutely. This is a, <laughs> a major benchmark and, and celebrations just all over the world. It's amazing. Yeah. And this this book's a great, uh, great contribution to that. And um, and I just want to say before we even get started, not only is it smart and informative, it is gorgeous. The art is absolutely gorgeous. Your partner, um, Tim Fielder, um, yes. just did. A, I mean, it, it's it's stunning. Um, but before we get into the graphic history of hip hop, um, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, how did you come to be the historian, scholar, and and thinker that you are? Wow. So just to keep it quick, um, I was very, very fortunate. My my father, uh, David H. Grison, uh, passed away about a year ago, November 18th of 2022. And my mother, uh, Wilma Ham Grayson, was an extraordinary civil rights activist in New Jersey. And the two of them were determined before anything else that I get the absolute best education possible. And so um, my dad prevailed on my mother that I would go to a relatively small, unknown private school in Titton Falls, New Jersey, as a uh, kindergartner. And so I spent my first 13 years there at the Ranny School, which predicated um, enormous resources on literacy and critical analysis. And so by the time I was in third grade, we were writing college level essays and pushing <laughs> about the kinds of vocabulary, syntax, diction, the, the things that I still teach to this day, I learned in those first 13 years. And as the only African-American student there, there were numerous challenges. Um, just enormous kinds of misunderstandings. Um, a student tried to drown me um, one day in a pool and um, oh. <laughs> groups of students would try to beat me up in middle school just because I was black. So, you know, there was enormous adversity, but the skills that I took from the experience, um, I was prepared for college by the time I finished eighth grade. And, you know, when I went on to graduate work, uh, the first thing the professor said was, who taught you how to write? And so... Those, those foundations were just tremendous for me. Um, Villanova was a place that I also went to because it had a reputation for real radical conservatism and uh, they had driven out and treated badly a number of black and Latino students. Yeah. And so I went there very much in the, in the pursuit of the vision that John, John Lewis put forward is that there shouldn't be universities that are intolerant and hostile to, to different racial and ethnic groups. So um, ran a four-year civil rights campaign through that my time at the university and um, got to teach my first <laughs> higher education class in 94 was the uh, politics and philosophy of hip hop. Um, doing at, that work. At, 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 at Villanova? Yeah. Yeah, right on. Yeah, working with yeah. the Africana Studies Program, Magan Keita, tremendous mentor. Yeah. Uh, Terry Nance, still the vice president for or multicultural affairs. There's spectacular people. Um, and that set the tone for me to go to Temple. And uh, at Temple, founded a nonprofit called the Ujima Collective that was a partner with the Black Radical Congress. Uh, we led the um, Philadelphia contribution to the National Dialogue on Race under Bill Clinton. Um, did a number of initiatives that got more students into college, particularly with scholarship support. Um, this work has, has been every day of my life, <laughs> uh, at least since I was 12 years old. And so um, all that set the, ten, the tempo to write about suburbanization, um, how small black communities were being destroyed across the country due to the way 
federal financing for residential neighborhood expansion was unfolding. And then that, that work opened the door for a number of really successful projects to, um, from founding the T. Thomas Fortune Cultural Center and preserving National Historic Landmark to taking on and building the, building the policy infrastructure for President Obama's American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. So this work has, has always for me is about working people, families that are struggling to make ends meet, and then how do we actually make a, a more humane and more just society? Right on. I mean, it, it, that sounds like a really incredible blend of activism, scholarship, life mission, and um, all, all goes back to your parents' educational decisions, right? First day of school ever, I asked my mother why I was going to school. She was like, you've got to do better than I did. And I was like, what's that? She's like, well, I got a master's in career counseling. You've got to get your PhD. So at five oh. years old, I was like, well, that's what school is for. Oh, right. That's, that's, that's a great story. Um, I wanted to ask you about Afrofuturism and that's, uh, central to your work. And I mean, don't be presumptuous, but dare I say maybe worldview, um, it's a major theme in, uh, the, the style of art in the, in the book. Um, uh, you highlight it on, in your, in your professional, um, uh, website. Um, would you be kind enough to explain Afrofuturism to the uninitiated? What does it mean as an art form, as a political statement, as an intellectual intervention? Thank you. Yeah, no, it, it is a tremendously important idea that has its roots in black science fiction. There's this question of where and how do we imagine people of African descent um, in, the, in the realm of science fiction and fantasy? And so the work of Samuel Delaney, of Octavia Butler, uh, Dwayne McDuffie, and Christopher Priest. These are all people who, in the 60s and 70s, began to not just um, do the work of preserving Black history and telling stories about the current lives of Black people, but began to speculate and figure out how do we then imagine what else is possible going forward. So for me, it, it's a very important transformation of, of the public discourse in, in the 1990s is when the name Afrofuturism emerges from the Village Voice with Mark Derry and Alondra Nelson. Um, these folks begin to see the core themes that are coming out of the literature and out of music, out of hip hop, and are saying there are different ways that we can present what it means to be a part of the African diaspora. And so I look back over a century to the 1910s and 1920s, when you have someone like Du Bois or Ida Wells Barnett, or particular significance to me as T. Thomas Fortune, they weren't calling themselves Afrofuturists, but they were imagining different kinds of futures for Black people through the policies, through the literature, through the art that they were creating. But at that point, the primary goal was just to get people to acknowledge that there was a legitimate history and culture of Black people. Like the, the consensus denied the fundamental humanity of anyone of African descent, and therefore there was no history worthy of study. There was no literature or art to be considered or taken seriously. And so that struggle took the better part of 70 years. And so the emergence of Black science fiction and fantasy in the 60s and 70s is responding to the emergence of sci-fi after the world Second World War. 
And that piece was looking at um, even cinematic expressions like Star Wars, where you get a single African-American character. And there's the, a sense of... In the, in the second one. In the second film, yes. and and he and he betrays our heroes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, George Lucas. Super progressive, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's a, that sense of just how do we shape a future and who do we imagine as part of our future? Um, it's a huge debate from the advent of the civil rights laws up up through the real acceptance of hip hop in the mid nineteen nineties as as an emerging genre. And so what really crystallizes it is when we have a movement for black lives after the killings of Trayvon Martin and, and Michael Brown, and especially after Breonna Taylor and George Floyd are killed, is that part of the Black Lives Matter movement focuses on not just the worth of these lives, but the lost potential of who people can become over time. And that's that's at the heart of Afrofuturism, is giving us a sense of unlimited possibility for what tomorrow can be, and especially for people who have been held on the margins or systemically oppressed in different contexts. For me, the work was largely about Wakanda. And so from 2001 to 2007, I worked with Christopher Priest and with Reginald Hudland, who were writing the Marvel comics about the Black Panther. And basically, in conjunction with them, built out the idea of what a Wakandan economy could be like based on the way economies actually work. Um, with Hudlin, I was basically pitching what is Wakandan architecture? How does the urban planning and design work in an independent country that's never been colonized? And so this leads to all kinds of wonderful insights about different kinds of technologies, um, synergies between nature and technology that we typically see as in opposition, uh, respect for human dignity at the heart of medicine, and the ways that it's it's not just driven by pharmaceutical investment. So we had written essentially an online encyclopedia of what Wakanda could be based on, on real world science and social science and history. And when the Iron Man film came out in 2008, we knew eventually there would be a Black Panther movie. Um, in 2016, the character appeared in the Captain America Civil War movie. And we republished everything as a single site called the Wakanda syllabus. And that was the key resource that was used over the next two years to produce the Black Panther movie and the sequel, uh, Wakanda Forever. And so when you look at the design of Wakanda, when you look at uh, Talokan, the indigenous underwater society that they show in the second film, <laughs> all these things are, are built on pieces that I, I basically wrote between 2001 and 2007. Ah, awesome. Yeah. Um, and uh, forgive me, but uh, I think I'm professionally obligated by my university to throw a little shout out to Ryan Coogler, who is yes. a Sacramento State graduate, you know, yes. our favorite son. Um, <laughs> and uh, he and Hannah Beachler were spectacular in, yeah. in actually crafting both films. Just yeah. a gift to all of us. Yeah. I mean, just his his trajectory um, uh, discovered. Uh, discovering film in Roberto Pomo's class and then um, Fruitvale Station as his debut. Like, wow, mm. wow. And um, I mean, just his success with with the Black Panther films and um, and Creed. I mean, <laughs> we're all so proud. So made at Sac State. So yes. <laughs> that's my, again, no, professionally Fruitler obligated right there. one of the there. best filmmakers. <laughs> no, he yeah. is, he's the future of where Hollywood is headed. Yeah. Hey, and, and so 
I mean, I, I came to Afrofuturism through reading and um, uh, particularly Octavia Butler, right? Butler. Mm -hmm. um, but there, like, there's also these resonances with music and culture and particularly like sort of George Clinton, Funkadelic Parliament, right? Yes. Like, so what, yes. what, what is that sort of slippage between the intellectual, uh, uh, not only intellectual, but like the, the literary project and the performing arts project? I mean, how does that, does that mesh? So you hit at one of the key theoretical frames I teach a great deal about and love to kind of play with and write about whenever I can find a minute, but it's how do we translate words and in, into images and into sound? What is the relationship of when we hear a song we like, what then does that manifest for us visually? How do we take a musical performance, turn it into a music video? How do you take the music video and then turn it into a novel or a poem? Um, those processes, those human processes of creativity and, and critical engagement, that's fascinating to me. And um, I actually just did a presentation for the graphic history of hip hop for teachers about teaching uh, multimedia historical literacy. How do we actually talk about the idea of any humanity subject, but for me it's particularly history, as it moves across different kinds of mediated expressions. And so I have an article online called uh, Word Image Sound, or no, no, Word Image Architecture. And um, it talks at length about this, but that piece is what I teach. All of my students are required to create original art by the end of whatever course they take with me. That shows that they have mastered that skill, that they can go from the scholarly literature, begin to craft it with pieces of either art that they create themselves or existing art that they seek to analyze. And then how do you set it to a soundtrack? How do you set it using different kinds of techniques of musicality that actually make it a visceral experience for anyone who sees it. So that piece is, to me, the heart of what Afrofuturism is, is that none of the art um, is, is existing by itself. Um, Octavia Butler relied on music to drive her creativity. She writes about it in her diaries, about the way the music she enjoys basically sets the tone for the kinds of worlds um, she wants to critique and create. And so same thing with, with Sam Delaney. Uh, my, my favorite example is Christopher Priest, who was a uh, first African-American editor of the comics at, at uh, Marvel Comics back in the early 80s. And he's a, he's a Baptist minister. Uh, the gospel, both the text of, of the New Testament plus the actual Black sorrow song tradition, is everything to him. And as he crafts the stories, this just bleeds into everything he puts together. It's the foundation of what his artists, um, Bob Alman and Sal Valuto, put together in, in the most famous of the Black Panther comics, uh, The Client. And so to me, we get to be more fully human the more we explore the ways that art, science, social science, humanistic critical inquiry these things all must be in relationship to each other. And that's one of the most frustrating things for me in higher ed is the way we kind of go into our silos and departments and we don't connect enough about how our ideas influence and shape each other. And so that is certainly at the heart of what happens in the graphic history of hip hop. And um, it's it's a huge part of what defines Afrofuturism. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Were you, were you a comics guy? I mean, I know you worked on... Um... Uh, the Encyclopedia of Black Comics. Um, 
like is this was this a part of your your life were you kind of a comic yeah, so i, you, I you got can, my first comic when i was yeah i was like five years old and so in a in a convenience store and i think my mother paid 35 cents for this weird little comic on the bottom shelf called the um official handbook of the marvel universe and so this is like an encyclopedia that talks about all the different characters and their biographies and first appearances it's a resource basically for writers and artists to look at how people have depicted the characters and how do you keep the story straight how do you actually play into the major elements of every character's story but i loved it i could not stop reading it i just over and over and over again kept reading and memorizing you know these different pieces of the story and the handbook i think was like something 30 volumes when they initially published it so i only had one little copy of part of the series but years later i would end up collecting like the second edition of it that was the entire comprehensive history of all their characters and so i read comics i want to say up until i was like um ninth or tenth grade and um it was funny christopher priest um before he changed his name was jim owsley and i i had read jim owsley comics and just loved what he had done when i was very small but then came back to him as an adult when I saw what he was doing to transform the Black Panther character. And it took me a while. It took me about two or three months before I realized, like, this is the same dude. Like, he changed his name, but I know the, I know this guy. And so, yeah, I, I was into comics really deeply until I took on kind of the serious study of history as an undergraduate and graduate student. And I think I came back to it mainly as I, as just for fun and as stress relief when I was writing my dissertation and, and running my nonprofit, it was like I could sit in a bookstore. They had done a couple of really dramatic storylines with amazing art with Marvel Comics and with DC. And so I was familiar with all the trappings and the way that their ideas were evolving. But it was particularly that Black Panther comic um, when Marvel Comics almost went out of business. Um, they tried to catch a new audience and they certainly caught me. And in conversation with Christopher Priest and, and, and Reginald Hudlin, I saw an opportunity to add a really sophisticated academic scholarly dimension to the way they took on the stories. So I knew we were onto something good in the second year of the Black Panther comics when we did a story on uh, the Killmonger character as a venture capitalist who attempt to use economic techniques to, over, to overtake the country. And so it was basically an, a, an analysis of things like what Mitt Romney did with Bain Capital. Like, what if you had an African nationalist attempt to leverage international banking against a, a independent African economy? And it was wildly successful. People loved it. Um, the thing that got me was the, the artistic and editorial team actually named the Wakandan National Economy after me so like it's called the wakanda design group and my name is walter david grayson and the <laughs> the stock ticker itself as they showed it in, in the comic was wdg like every couple panels so oh that's an awesome know, easter egg i love that <laughs> yeah, yeah and the that's artists so cool. and, and the writers are really really good people very kind and that's that's the kind of thing that like you'll see it again in graphic history of hip-hop is there are little bits and hidden pieces that are layered in there that if you're paying close attention, you'll see there's, there's a lot of academic history. There's a lot of real engagement with the implications of the good and bad aspects of hip hop. 
Yeah. 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 And we will get to your book, <laughs> but I had so many questions about your, you know, your intellectual formation. Um, yeah, but that's, that's, I think one of the real benefits of uh, graphic history, graphic scholarship is um, the use of, you know, the trade term Easter eggs, but like that makes it scalable. So yes. the, the work that I've done is, is being used in high schools, community colleges, undergraduate courses around the country, graduate courses, um, Johns Hopkins Medical School. Like it's, it's, it's really, wow. really scalable and can be read really different ways. Sometimes about Vietnamese yes. history, sometimes about world history, sometimes about historical methodology. And I think that that's one of the real the real benefits of this genre for uh, those of us who are scholars. Um, we need to again, go and take this to the AHA. They don't realize, they don't realize in the profession how valuable this, this set of skills are. <laughs> I, I think, I think they're, I, I push back, Jenny. they're coming around. I think Trevor Getz is doing some good work over there. Trevor um, is spectacular. Yeah. Just definitely open the door. Yeah. This is what yeah. I'm saying is like, we yeah, need 10,000 more of us. <laughs> 10,000 more Trevors. <laughs> One, two, three Trevors. <laughs> I've definitely been writing his coattails. He's, he's fantastic. So, Hey, uh, let's talk about hip hop. Um, we all know it was born five decades ago when DJ Cool Herc uh, played a party. It was a, was it a rec room in the in the Bronx? And uh, sister's apartment. Sister's apartment. Yeah. Okay, um, yeah. uh, in the Bronx. Um, I mean, what can you, as a historian, tell us about the social, political, and economic context that produced this world changing art form? Yeah. So. It's kind of the most painful stuff to talk about for me is I started out as really a civil rights historian. And, you know, there's this enormous sense of possibility and victory that comes out of uh, Martin Luther King's work, uh, the debates with Malcolm X, uh, the emergence of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And and there's a sense of a real celebration with the Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act of 65 and the Fair Housing Act of 68. Um, but then it's always this, this kind of tragic um, foreclosure of possibility that comes with the election of 1968, um, where Richard Nixon essentially crafts an agenda for a silent majority um, to reject youth activism, race activism, women's feminist work, and, and build a conservative machine that would survive the Watergate scandal. And... Um, really transformed the remainder of the, the 20th century at minimum. But even when you look at the work of uh, Bill Clinton or, or Barack Obama, the framework of disinvestment in public goods um, survives. And so this is the piece I, I, you know, my colleagues who read the comic get <laughs> critical with me about just celebrate the dancing and the fun and the fashion. And I'm like, no, there's there's actually something really important that we have to tell the story that yeah. in the early 1970s, the way the nation turns away from the civil rights agenda and really embraces a lot of the kinds of um, white conservative, white citizens, councils, um, legitimation of their authority, that segregation really can't be overturned that we have to be careful not to listen to immigrants and advocates for the poor, um, that we don't want to become Europe, quote unquote. Like there's this fear of liberal democracy that takes deep root in this period. And the folks who are building hip hop are surviving 
this process of disinvestment. They're surviving the bankruptcy of New York, the, the austerity budgets that take hold in cities across the country. And, you know, it, it's largely um, either African-American or African diaspora, young men standing on the counter unemployed, um, running away from law enforcement, worried about kind of dealing with issues of addiction and poverty and unemployment. Um, and they pass the time and have fun rhyming together and creating beats for each other and surviving. Like that's, that's ultimately what hip hop is. It's a, it's a survival culture and experience as people just try to make ends meet, not, not get evicted, um, not get fired, you know, not, you know, end up hospitalized or in jail. So that's the backdrop for what hip hop is coming from is that that first decade from 73 to 83, these are just ways for people to find the joy that they can on a given night or weekend to start to demonstrate this kind of skill, this intellect that's actively under attack um, by, by state government, by, by federal authorities and, and people who want to police what, what is acceptable expression. Mm-hmm. And so this is this is the key for me for what hip hop does from the early 80s into the mid 1990s is it popularizes a sense of authentic expression among young people that you can speak your truth and share your perspective in a way that demonstrates your own individual genius, but also inspires people to find their own voices. And and that's really the the extraordinary power uh, of the art form is that um, there's an amazing song that came out a few years ago uh, from Yasin Bey and uh, Slick Rick called Auditorium. And um, Yasin's lyrics are just gifted, spectacular exploration of the lyrical gymnastics, the ability to speak clearly, effectively through multiple kinds of metaphor, simile, um, the kinds of parallelism and, and illustration that you can summon spontaneously as you speak. But then Slick Rick's verse is a story about being a soldier in the course of the war on terror, the war in Iraq, and serving in a place where everyone hates him and everyone is rejecting him because he is he's essentially an invading an occupying force. And yet when he goes up to a group of musicians, very much like a hip hop cipher, playing on the corner, just passing their days trying to survive, and he starts to rhyme with them, all of a sudden there's a sense of belonging and community and and the way that we build and we survive together. And so hip-hop is a way that people who are facing enormous adversity, whose lives are in danger, they can actually have some peace of mind. They can find some joy and sense of solidarity together. And it really doesn't matter if you're in Atlanta, St. Louis, or Oakland, or if you're in South Korea, Argentina, South Africa, like everyone around the world is is facing real struggle. And hip hop is a tool that you can use to not just survive it, but you can overcome. Yeah, absolutely. And and also just in that that context of economically disenfranchised yet incredibly creative young artists 
you just need your brain in your mouth, right? <laughs> you just need yes. to be able to think and articulate. And that's lowering the bar to entry from, you know, being in a rock band or, or having to have instruments and so forth that, yes. that, that music can be can be done on the corner rhymes can be practiced i mean um it it, it resonates with you know what, what i know about the history of the early punk movement in, mm. in working class england and having like very limited access to instruments so let's let's create with what we have um, yes yeah so uh, could you talk about some of the phases that hip-hop's gone through in this 50-year history i mean obviously you could talk for quite some time, but like sort of briefly, like what what are, what are the key phases in this fifty years? That's a good question right now because I'm 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 rethinking. We're in a moment yeah. where you know even as we produce this book, we basically stop at two thousand six. Yeah. Just saying, where we're still seeing kind of transformation and evolution happen in the last fifteen or sixteen years. But um, so I'll come back to kind of the contemporary moment in in a second but to start for me it's always been original school that is the folks who don't have record contracts who, who don't get radio airplay they're really straight up in the park in the apartment building in the stairwell just rhyming for friends and folks who are passers-by um that original school rap um whether it's grandmaster flash or cool herc or um I say Curtis Blow was really influential for me, Sugar Hill Gang. These folks, you know, like they start to break through, but there's a lot of skepticism. There are a lot of barriers. People see it as kind of um, a fad, something that is weird that can be kind of laughed at and then kind of ignored. Um, it's the moment when you really see, I guess, UTFO and Full Force and Roxanne Roxanne is this transformative piece. And it's the emergence of Run DMC and, and Def Jam Records that folks start to stop and take notice and think um, this is actually much bigger than we thought it was going to be. Everyone looks at the um, Run DMC Aerosmith collaboration. Uh, folks will also look at um, Public Enemy and Anthrax or Rage Against the Machine. Um, there are these ways that the music in hip hop is experimental and connects across genres and starts to kind of build on the success of rock, um, build on the success uh, of punk and join a community of people who are engaged in struggle and, and critical analysis of, of the world around them. And so um, you end up out of that moment getting from, say, a pop project like uh, We Are the World, which is was dealing with hunger and starvation, all the way up through songs like uh, You Will Know um, was a kind of compilation R&B track that was talking about how do you overcome and deal with law enforcement and police brutality. Um, you have compilation tracks like uh, Stop the Violence within hip hop where people are building unity and community and finding ways to have a collective voice against the problems that they're experiencing. So hip hop in that phase is not quite the commercial industry that it's going to become later, but it is, it is this moment of, I guess, old school is the way mm -hmm. most people talk about it is that the, your early record contracts, the, the early kind of access to cable television, um, people, using videos to create a, a persona that they can then market. And, and at the biggest level, I would say Master P, No Limit Records in the South, 
that you can get into a studio and create, you know, some basic recordings, tapes, you know, CDs, and just go from city to city and city selling them out of the trunk of your car and make a lot of money. Um, probably my favorite story is about the Wu-Tang Clan out of mm -hmm. Staten Island and the way that they're able to go independent and sell cassettes of Protect Your Neck mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. become legendary um, for not just having their own deal as a group, but having enough leverage that they can say, and all of our members will all have their own independent deals mm -hmm. with whatever record label they want to deal with. It completely changes the record industry. The next real shift is with Napster and kind of digital music sharing and how the, the entire music industry has to change. And I think that that is really a, a troublesome moment for hip hop where they've broken into this large network of music distribution. And then all of a sudden the bottom kind of falls out in terms they're, of the ability they're, they're, to they're, make they're money. Fin they're finally getting paid in the system. And then all of a sudden the, the rules get changed, right? That's it. Yeah. That's it. And so that's that's when you see really Dr. Dre um, and, and Sean Combs um, pioneer the kinds of discussions of, okay, how do we produce a product where it's no longer about me rapping or me producing the music, but I'm actually bringing a new artist in and they're able to sell at a high volume. And then we replicate this. So for Dr. Dre, it's um, he does this with Snoop as kind of a, a trial balloon, but then it's really with Eminem that he is able to pull him in and then replicate the formula. Eminem will bring in 50 Cent. Um, 50 Cent will bring in Lloyd Banks. And so it's this window in the early 2000s, 2003, 2004, when it becomes much more commercial, the only real goal is is mass sales, and so um, the dramatic impact for Sean Combs is, of course, the the death of Notorious B.I.G., and then he's he's left wandering for a decade trying to find that next artist that he can pull in that will generate substantial sales, and so it becomes about the record labels, it becomes about the companies, it becomes about how do you leverage digital access which is ultimately what Jay-Z masters. Um, Jay-Z is able to completely use digital music sharing to become the highest selling hip hop artist. And it transforms the rap industry by 2005. And um, what we close with in the book is this kind of hopeful sense is that we can still get individual people who rise up and can, can break through and do this and more people than ever aspire to it. But at the same time, the, the next year, Nas releases Hip Hop is Dead and is a track that basically is critical of the way that the, the, the commercial aspects have taken over. And so that sets up the, the contemporary analysis is that we have a world where you can sell more content more easily than ever. But whether it's Drake or it's Cardi B or Megan Thee Stallion, um, there are all these artists, Nicki Minaj, that it's it's primarily about sales, that the kinds of artistic principles that had kind of defined the art form from the late 70s and early 80s are not as prevalent. And so you'll get a song that like just came out is uh, Drake and J. Cole, uh, First Person Shooter. And it's an extraordinarily layered piece of music, but it's designed for commercial consumption. Mm -hmm. And so there's kind of this balancing act 
that's literally manifested by the two artists performing together, where Drake is much more about sales, much more about popularity, and J. Cole is much more about the art and the kind of craft of lyricism and musicality that has to go into a project to be considered authentic. And so that that interplay between the artists about trying to find what works in both arenas simultaneously, I think reflects a lot of issues for all of us in trying to negotiate what do we do with our time? How do we create meaning for ourselves? And yet, how do we actually also generate ways that the world will respond and kind of support the kind of work we want to do? So, yeah, that's that's some of the stuff I love most about hip hop and the way the phases of it evolve is to go from original school to old school to this kind of commercial and industrial focus and then now this this debate about is the art dead or or can it transform in some ways to maintain the authenticity that that it brought to the world in the first place right um you know and, and that's a question i don't know does that question get put to rock bands in the same way right Mm. Like here, here's you know, <laughs> but what white dominated music that has this, you know, this origin story of being DIY and and authenticity, but like it doesn't seem like that same uh, litmus test of authenticity gets thrown at rock bands the same There's way. A really interesting hip-hop conversation artists. around the Hall of Fame, around the Rock and Roll yeah. Hall of Fame, yeah. and kind of how how the Rolling Stone kind of leadership group. Um, sets a set of standards and assumptions in place about who belongs and how do they belong and what kind of is is legitimate uh, popular artistic creation. So there are folks who, who press on it, but um, yeah, the alternative rock scene just, you know, it, it has the same issues grappling with older artists who look back at, at 60s and 70s as the only time period for great art. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, and I I love what you said about the, the the commercial breakthrough. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the when uh, there was no hip hop on MTV, right? And then uh, then there was this segregated hour for Yo MTV raps that was like so marginalized, but that was the best show on MTV at the time, right? And it was um, wild. And, and it's you know, I talk I talk with my um my undergraduates about this, and it's unimaginable to them. Like, I said, like, like, no, like in my lifetime, and okay, I mean, there's a fair amount of gray in my beard, but like in my lifetime, popular culture was so literally segregated, even, even yeah. as it was going full consumer culture, it was still segregated. And, um, Michael you know, Jackson was not, was not pop enough. Yeah. <laughs> there was oh a miracle God. to get thriller on the air. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, so I mean, I, I don't I don't teach history of of American um, music and popular culture, but I would love to delve into that. Um, now, getting beyond the United States, how do you how do you account for hip hop's global appeal? I mean, this is an art form that that's literally conquered the world. That's it. That like your point of entry that you make that you can learn to rhyme and get someone to make a beat for you really really cheaply like that. That's key. And so the bigger thing is that people around the world want to have a voice. And this is a way that, like, the the term that I started teaching was lyrical density. Mm. That if you listen to music prior to hip-hop, you have these long-held notes where people are just saying, la, and the note stretches out, and it might take four or five breaths, and it's considered 
virtuosity for you to be able to sustain and perform in, in these kind of harmonic and, and melodic ways. Um, the dissonance of hip hop and the ability to do a line it's meant to be evidently that I rock so eloquently that it be gone and it'll let me kill another whack MC. Like every syllable is just stacked. And so the speed of what you can communicate and the amount of volume of what you can put together is just so different. And people want that. People like, yeah, there are times where you want to hear the melodic, you know, soft, harmonious performance. But there are other times you really want something that is going to challenge you and make you sit and listen and listen and listen and listen until you get it. And so that challenge just to the aesthetic of what what music is, is a, a huge deal. And people around the world, if they are experiencing some kind of adversity, they can't do that. And, and they can do it symbolically in a traditional kind of, you know, R&B or, or har harmonic vocal performance but this can get a lot more literal when you have more space for communicating much more complex messages oh, i think yeah. of somebody Just in the early so 2000s text, like right? yeah like immortal technique if you yeah. listen to industrial revolution or um peruvian cocaine like these are just astonishing political essays that are then crafted as hip-hop lyrics and delivered with beats behind them um, I think my students, when I first taught Immortal Technique, would have probably been like 2003, 2004, and they couldn't stop playing him. Like, they just went out on campus in their cars and blasted his whole Revolutionary Volume 2 album. And people were like, what is this? Where did you find this? And that's the thing that changes is like, I still use Immortal Technique's um, Rich Man's World that just breaks down the way corporations run the way world society works. And so you can't find really other forms of music that do that as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Lyrical density, I think that that nails it right there. There's so much put in there. Both, I mean, it's both the the technical proficiency of watching the artist say, sing, do that, right? Like, I I can't do that. It's like watching the Olympics. Like that's that's human excellence. But then so much message in there. Um, you know, I think about some of the uh, early KRS-One uh, messages, um, those real message songs that they're so dense. And yeah, anyway. <laughs> um, so do you remember the first time you heard hip hop, heard a particular song, an artist that like won you over, made you say, wow, like you got it? Or has, has it always been been there, been ambient? I mean, no, man. It's actually wild. I don't think I've said this to anybody before. Okay. So I, I, heard, I got a scoop. Uh, I, got a, I got a new book <laughs> history scoop right here. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> and go. So I heard Sugar Hill Gang and said like 78, 79, maybe even it was 1980 when they were on like a Saturday morning show called Wonderama. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. That's different. But then like later, you know, it, it was a struggle. Like the other kids in my school weren't listening to hip hop. Um, fifth, sixth, seventh grade. And so they thought it was weird that I would just come in and I would know all these lyrics and I would know all these songs that they had never heard of. But like, it was that transition that really showed me. Like my father, <laughs> he loved big band. And so every day we would hang out and he was always playing like Betty Goodman or, 
He was playing like, you know, I'm trying to think who was the other favorite. Um, Ann Murray. He loved Ann Murray. And so, like, coming up until I was about 10 years old, it was all this just very 1940s, 1950s music. It's actually funny. King of the Hill <laughs> as a cartoon. Yeah, yeah. Um, they would always kind of like joke about um, Chuck Mangione and um, yeah. feel so good. <laughs> and that song played in my house almost <laughs> every day. Like that was just a part of growing up was listening to that song. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, it was just a very different sense. And when I started getting into hip hop, they were like, what is this? What are you listening to? But um, where it changed for me was definitely Karis One Boogie Down Productions. Um, I can remember on my one of my earliest jobs, my first real paid job, um, I learned introduction to poetry just word for word. And um, I can remember sitting listening to the radio at night uh, when DJ Red Alert said uh, Scott LaRock had been killed, and I was a hundred miles away. But like that hit me just like I had lost a relative, and so. That piece, that transformation then was compounded when Public Enemy dropped. I do think um, Rebel Without a Pause was the track where I heard that and I was like, that's who I am. Like, that is who I am. And so, yeah, there was there was other tracks, Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos. The, the Public Enemy piece, 87, 88, 89, I was just talking to his friends I grew up with the other day. They still love and listen to Fear of a Black Planet. Um, like it's amazing. This, this is a, I mean, it's op- I mean, the Public Enemy. I mean, that that era just absolutely amazing work, right? Yes, yeah, and it, this is all growing out of fight the power and to do yep. the right thing. Um, that moment in the late eighties, early nineties was really a rupture for people who were tired and may couldn't even articulate necessarily why they were tired of all the kind of like messages that came out of uh, Reaganism mm-hmm. through through the 80s. But then it gave them a framework to start to raise questions at least and then see that something else was possible. And so it, it still wasn't fully formed. It wasn't, you know, people weren't trying to hear from Sister Soldier in 1992 when Bill Clinton attacks her and says that she's an illegitimate voice on the national stage. So there's there's a lot of limitations to what goes on there. I mean, we see Al Gore's wife, Chipper, led the campaign to put parental restriction stickers on all these albums. And so people think hip hop was always popular, but it was really an uphill fight just to have it become part of accepted language in, in the way the United States and the world could hear young people. Like that was not automatic by any means. Yeah, yeah, and you know, we you, when you talk about public public enemy and and you know, I think I was definitely listening to um, KRS One and 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 others before that, but it was really public enemy that uh, you know I was young white punk rocker at that time, right? That's that was the the hip hop kind of punk breakthrough that. Um, you know when they and then they re-recorded with uh, with Anthrax. I even saw that tour uh, with Anthrax and yes. Public Enemy at uh, the Henry J. Kaiser in Oakland. Um, absolutely amazing and just like that. I mean, people talk about the the DM or um, Run DMC um, Aerosmith um, collab. Okay, that that's that's at that commercial level, but I think yeah. really authentic hip hop level. It's it's public enemy and anthrax that was just uh, yes. that incredible. It, it, was, it was a racial breakthrough. I mean, it, it 
Yes. It's astounding. And in 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 two what had been very, very segregated genres, right? And um, I, that was, I was at thing. that concert they, they, you and finally it was you build community. Yeah, like yeah. everybody. It was it was everybody and it was awesome. I mean, it was just amazing. Um who's uh you know, to steal from uh the Chris Rock film, uh who's who's your top five? <laughs> that, can can you even? Can you even? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I have a particular because lyricism is enormous to me and, and political expression. I wrote an essay called The Canon. Um, God, it's got to be 10 years ago now, where I went through and talked about kind of not just a top five, but really five genres of different kinds of hip hop and rap performance that for me define how you move through and grow through the art. Um, in my top category, um, you could probably tell I talk about Immortal Technique is is just spectacular. Yeah. Um, but I'd say my number one is uh, Farrell Monch. Uh, Farrell Monch comes out of Queens. Um, he was in this group called Organized Confusion in the mid-90s. Um, had a breakthrough with his album Internal Affairs, I want to say 98, 99, uh, off of Raucous Records. And just tragedy. His biggest song was called uh, Simon Says, and it samples a beat out of the Godzilla movies. It goes boom, 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 boom. And that's like looped. But the owners of the Godzilla films sued him for using the beat from their film. And so he was forced to repay them over a period of like eight years out of continual performances, just like, and they wouldn't let him make money off of this, this amazing single he had produced. And so it was just tragic that this amazing lyricist had to kind of suffer this penalty for almost a decade. But then he has gone on and done something amazing. Like, I love his track, When Gun Draws, where he's rapping from the perspective of a bullet and kind of condemning gun violence. And um, he did that as an independent artist. It, it got MTV airplay. It got enormous circulation. And so he still tours really successfully. I was so happy for him, actually, here in Minneapolis about a month ago. Um, Nas and uh, Wu-Tang were performing with De La Soul, but they brought him out as a surprise guest and they like indu in inducted him into the Wu-Tang Clan. They made him like a Wu-Tang Clan member. <laughs> and like for like a hip hop artist for Wu-Tang to come up and celebrate, you'd be like, yo, you belong with us. Like I was so happy for him because I just knew the kind of struggle he had been through. So, yeah, let, let's say um, Immortal Technique, Farrell Monts, Gene Gray, and then I'm torn. Because I got to say Wu-Tang, Wu-Tang is just tremendous and like, <laughs> I can't go anywhere without getting down with, with what they do. But then I have to say also uh, Black Star, Most Def and Talib Kweli. Like, um, Most Def changed his name to Yasin Bey and I was talking about him earlier. But that album, um, along with Black on Both Sides and the Reflection Eternals albums, um, the song I teach the most really is called um, Thieves in the Night. And it's most deaf and Talib Kweli interpreting the bluest eye by Toni Morrison as a hip hop track. Mm -hmm. And it's just magnificent. Absolutely magnificent song. For me, it's very hard to find another song that's as good as that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so why did you want to work with uh, Tim Fielder we, um, and the, the artist? And I, I, I really want to underline this and um, that the book is just visually just gorgeous, just absolutely gorgeous. Um, 
have you worked with him before? Why did you want to work with him? What 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 about his art, his eye drew you to him? Yeah, so um, I was part of Black Sci-Fi back before folks were calling it Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm. And Tim has been in it since the early 1980s, doing art in a variety of venues. And we met, I want to say 2015, uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, at an event called Planet Deep South, uh, hosted by Jackson State University, um, led by John Jennings, who has become the dominant artist of Afrofuturism over the last decade or so, um, produced stuff like Black Kirby, does a ton of stuff for Marvel now. But like all, like you probably had 50 of us there, artists, writers, scholars, talking about Afrofuturism at Planet Deep South. It was literally like a church experience. I had been at the previous event in 2014, which was um, Astro Blackness. And then um, I think the next year we got together at Princeton for Ferguson is the future. And so Tim and I were were just vibing. He was his energy is infectious. Just an amazing person to work with. And uh, Ronaldo Anderson, who's at Temple now, um, who is in uh, Africology, put a group of people together to do Afrofuturist work on nuclear proliferation. So we were actually working and advising the Air Force on the ways that we actually move towards a secure nuclear world. And this was, I want to say, 2019, summer of 2019, or it might have been 2021. And um, when we did that, I saw Tim just on the spot um, sketching theoretical visions of what the future of agriculture could be, what the uh, future of transportation could be. He's just on the spot generating this extraordinary art um that i i ended up seeing about a year later when he was talking about like the way ai was going to change education he had done this sketch that ended up getting used by um meta by by facebook for one of their tv commercials and so seeing how quickly he produces art and the way just how organized and how focused he is about producing good work um you know, there are lots of amazing artists. I, I think of John, I think of Stacey Robinson. There are just brilliant, brilliant artists across the movement in Afrofuturism. But when I needed somebody for this hip-hop comic that needed to work on a relatively tight timeline that could produce a lot of quality art um, that would be memorable, Tim was the choice. And I was very fortunate to catch him at a time when he had a, a break in his schedule and it made sense for him. But... um now it's become, you know, this enormously important partnership for me. And it's just th- so thankful that that we were able to build this this volume, and we got two more volumes of the book coming out uh, this time next year. Yeah, what could you speak to those next two volumes? Oh yeah, yeah. So this is the overview. This is this was yeah. the the simple and easy one. So yeah. um, this first volume that we just released uh, this past Wednesday. Uh, is the free copy that goes to the students in New York City. In about three weeks, we're going to have the expanded volume one, which is the collector's edition. That's a hardbound 70-page um, edition that has much more than what the students got. And so we're going to have that up and available online probably in about another week, week and a half. Oh, and so, okay. okay. Uh, so I, I, so I, I read the the PDF of the of what was released to the students. The student edition. Yes, and, there, and there's more. You don't know how excited oh, yeah. I am that there's more. Okay, 70 pages are <laughs> bound. Who, who's publishing it? 
Oh yeah, so that that's just me and Tim going through Ingram. That's his publishing okay. house. He, he okay. distributes his art through Ingram. Right. So that that'll be out in a couple of weeks, and then um, what we're contracted for with New York City is to do two more thirty-page comics um, by the end of next summer. The second edition is going to look at the contemporary scene. So since two thousand six, how has hip hop evolved, and then the kind of contradictions between the commercial pressures and the artistic demands. Then um, the third edition is a much more ambitious 30-page comic that basically puts hip-hop in world historical context. And so we literally go back, you know, 3,000 years and look at the history of music and then situate hip-hop in a conversation with the evolution of world world music up until the present. And so um, those are the next two volumes each of them is also going to have an expanded hardcover edition that'll be like double the size of what the students get. So it's just a really exciting time. Uh, I'm 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 excited. <laughs> these are gonna have, these are gonna have a really special place on my shelf, man. I can't wait. Um, I'm thrilled uh, to hear that. Um, well, so I mean, the we sort of end these interviews with asking you two questions. Um, uh, the first is. Um, well, the last one, sort of, uh, what are you working on now? But that that seems to uh, be what's coming up there. Um, so let me finish with, um, can you suggest two books for the audience to read um, on on any subject? But, but you know, some two good hip hop books would obviously be appropriate, right? <laughs> so that, was my, that was my thing is that like, oh my goodness, um, there's so many good pieces to recommend. And yeah, just on hip hop. If you haven't read that's the joint by by Mark Anthony Neal, Murray Foreman, and and uh, Regina Bradley, their new edition is just about to come out, and so that's the joint is spectacular, and I can't wait to see this this new edition that they're putting forward. Um, fun book that's not not quite hip hop, although it's got a lot of hip hop influences to it, is Andre Brock, Distributed Blackness, and so uh, this is about race and social media. And mm. just, I'm teaching it in the spring, so I've been, been prepping for that class. And yeah, if you have a chance to pick up Andre Brock's Distributed Blackness, it's a lot of fun. Okay, right on. And uh, I'm going to uh, exercise a little privilege here of, as the host, and I have to give a shout out for my high, to my high school buddy, um, Jeff Chang's uh, Can't Stop, oh, Won't yes. Stop. Jeff Chang, Can't Stop, Won't Stop. I mean, really, really great history of hip hop. Um and um you know speaks to the globalization um absolutely absolutely like me he's from honolulu (laughs) and uh (laughs) one of the most important voices out there like that's a book that i've also taught for like at least a decade (laughs) oh that that makes me i i I love hearing praise from my buddy (laughs) He's, he's great um Hey, Walter Grayson, thank you so much for chatting with me. I could go on for another hour or so. Uh, maybe we'll figure oh, out a way to get you back. We, we, got, we, got more, we got more volumes coming out, so we'll get you back. Yes, please. Thank you. I would love it. All right. Um, this has been a conversation with Dr. Walter Grayson about the graphic history of hip hop, published by the New York City Department of Education in 2023 to mark 50 years of the art. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.